Well, good morning, church family. Please take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 12 through 21. I hope to preach a pretty simple message this morning, um, and, uh, and so I hope you'll be encouraged as we go through this. Um, but we're going to talk about two things that are incredibly important. And so my title this morning is Gospel Advancement and the Glory of Christ. Now, as we look back through Philippians, uh, the last section we looked at last week, you will notice that Paul begins this letter with an incredible overflow of joy and thanksgiving for the church that he loves, a church that he had invested his time and efforts into, and a church that he knows loves him dearly as well. Now, I want to say right at the beginning that it is right to express our gratitude and love for those that Christ has placed into our church family and community. Amen? It is right for me to say as your pastor that I love you. And I do. I might not say it as often as I should, but I am grateful to God for the church that he has allowed me to serve in. And I hope that you are also grateful for the brothers and sisters that you have here. Many of you have invested many, many years, decades, into this community of faith. And I hope you would, if you were to write a letter, you would express some of the same sentiments that Paul had, where he can say, I love you with the very affections of Jesus. So if I don't say that enough as your pastor, hear that from me, that I am grateful. Um, I have a lot of friends in ministry that have been hurt and burned and have struggled all throughout their ministry and I want to say that Huntington is a wonderful place to be a pastor. This is a wonderful place where people, you might fuss at me some, I deserve it every now and then. But I know that I'm loved. I know that my family is loved and welcomed. And I, know, and I want you to know as your pastor that one of the great applications of what we did last week is just for me to stop and pause and say that I love you. I think very, I have very fond thoughts, and when I, when I go on visit other places on vacation, I long to get back to the people I know that God has uh, partly entrusted to my care. So, it is right for us to express that. So, if you have a Sunday school teacher that you love, if you have, a, if you have someone that's ministered to you here as just a brother and sister, it is right for you to, to share that so that you can stir up more love and affection. It cannot be stirred up if it is not shared or spoken. Amen? All of us have regrets where we wish we would have shared uh, sentiments like that when we didn't. So don't let that moment pass you by to say, I love you. I am grateful to God for you putting, me, you putting us in the same community of faith, allowing us to serve Jesus together in a place like Huntington. So what Paul does here as he transitions into the next section of uh, Philippians, verses 12 through 21 is Paul is going to leave us an example of true Christian living. What I mean by that is he's going to live, leave us an example of what it means to walk with Jesus and keep the, the right focus and the right mentality even when things are difficult. You'll notice that today as he talks about some very difficult things, he is still going to do so in the context of being grateful, of being thankful, of rejoicing, and of seeking to honor Jesus, even if that means he has to go through something that's difficult. That's a perspective that all of us need to have in our world that's very broken. The Bible doesn't pretend that the, that the world isn't broken or messed up, but what the Bible does is it reorients our experience and our expectations in light 
of what matters most. And that is Jesus' name and glory over all else. So let's look there at Philippians beginning in verse 12. Um, we'll read through verse 20. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this into two sections and work through it together with you. The first, I want you to notice that, that Paul is rejoicing in gospel advancement. That is the first thing that Paul is doing here. He is rejoicing over the truth that the gospel is continuing to spread all across Macedonia and Europe. Now the gospel, the word gospel, is an incredibly important word in, the, in this letter of Philippians. Paul uses it nine times in this short letter. Um, so, and it's interesting... That Paul, it's interesting to me that Paul is so sure, he is so sure that the Philippians know what he means when he says the word gospel, that he doesn't even pause to explain it. What that means is that the gospel was so ubiquitous, that's a good word, look it up by Google if you don't know what it means. The gospel was so ubiquitous to Paul's ministry. It was such the core of his ministry. It was such that he spoke about it so often and with such passion that no, he expected no one to misunderstood what, misunderstand what he said in Philippi. He didn't, he, he under, when he said the word gospel in Philippi, he knew that every person he wrote that letter to knew exactly what he was talking about. And so let me explain it for those who might not. We know exactly what Paul means when he uses the word gospel because of his other letters and acts. What Paul means is the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. That's what the gospel is. And Christ's present lordship over their lives. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And that he was proclaimed and he was received by repentance and faith. That is the gospel message. Paul gives us at least three ways here that he rejoices over the advancement of that gospel or the progress of that gospel. Look what he says first. He rejoices in the gospel's advancement through Paul's difficulties and imprisonment. He rejoices that even though he's in prison, the gospel is advancing. Look at verses 12 through 13 again. He says, I think, sorry, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest 
then my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul says that everything that's happened to him in his ministry, paradoxically, in some sense, has actually turned out to advance the gospel. He assumes that we know what those circumstances are, right? He doesn't spend time explaining it. But the question is, well, what happened to Paul that actually served to advance the gospel? If you were to go back to Acts, Paul, beginning in chapter 21, Paul begins to, Luke begins to recount what happens to Paul, that he was arrested in Jerusalem, that he was then taken to trial before Felix and Agrippa. The Jews tried to murder him, and ultimately Paul appealed to Rome and to, to Caesar in Rome. All right? And so that's what happened to all, that's what happened to Paul. But he even gives his own testimony of this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says about the things that's happened to him. Okay? Lest we think Paul was just, you know, flaky or just making something up. Or um, he, he, Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, But what anyone else dares to boast of, I also dare to boast. He says, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. Five times Paul was whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day, I was, a night and day I was adrift on the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And Paul looks at the Philippian church and says, and I rejoice that all of that got the gospel to where it needs to go. I want you to think about that. Just let that sink in your mind for a second. Paul says that all of those things didn't turn out to hinder the gospel. They actually turned out to advance the gospel to where it needed to go. That is a, that is a perspective that all of us need to have that whatever, happen, whatever befalls us, our great goal and aim and purpose in life is that the name of Christ get to the nations, that his name is glorified. So Paul rejoices in gospel advancement even through personal, very personal difficulties and imprisonment. But then he gives a second reason to rejoice. He rejoices that the gospel is being advanced through emboldened evangelism. Look at verse 14. Look what he says there. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul says that in spite of his imprisonment and difficulties, one of the ways that that is served to advance the gospel is through the emboldening of other believers to share Jesus. Notice that Paul says that most of the brothers have been stirred up. Not just a few, not just one or two people in the Macedonian church, but literally the majority of them have been stirred up to proclaim Jesus to all people. So instead of cowering in their homes, instead of cowering and, 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 and you know, trying to back away from missional engagement or, or engaging people with the gospel, instead of that, Paul says that 
that his imprisonment actually stirred them up to join Paul in proclaiming the gospel. Now, I want you to, if you, have, if you like to underline and circle, notice how Paul heaps up words for courage here. He just loads up these courageous terms. He says, they had become confident. That means convinced. They're convinced that their goal is to share Jesus. Then Paul, um, then it says they are much more bold. Now, what that means is this. Paul isn't saying that they weren't bold before. It's, the problem isn't that they weren't bold before, but that they are now much more emboldened. And they were made much more emboldened to speak the word without fear. Like, without fear, like, we don't care what you do to us. Jesus is Lord, and we will proclaim Him. Now, this is Paul rejoicing in the fact that Jesus, the gospel is being advanced, and Jesus is being proclaimed, despite whatever outside pressure might come on them. Now, this happens in Acts 4 as well. If you're a student of the Bible, um, you need to understand that in Acts 4, the believers were being persecuted, the disciples were being persecuted, because the Jews told them to their face, you will not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. You will forbid, stop, cease, and desist. Our lawyers are here, the, our court officials are here, the, the police are here, we will arrest you and throw you in jail. You will not preach the name of Jesus. And so what did they do? They had a prayer meeting. Listen to that prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. Listen to what they prayed about. It says, and when they were released, because they were in custody, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David your servant said by the Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, listen to what they say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders performed in the name of your servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did they pray for their circumstances to change? Did they pray that it would no longer be against the law for them to share Jesus? Did they pray that all of these people oppressing them would die? No, they prayed for one thing. They prayed for courage and boldness to share Jesus. That is incredibly important. So Paul, Paul's imprisonment here, he is rejoicing in the Lord that even in his imprisonment, it is not, this has not deterred people from sharing the gospel. No, it is him, it is God stirring up his people to greater evangelistic zeal. But then there's a third reason that Paul rejoices through gospel advancement, which is really kind of strange if you think about it. But notice that he rejoices that the gospel is being advanced even through those with bad motives. Even through those who only want to do Paul harm. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's what they want to do. So, apparently there was a group of people in the Macedonian congregation, or at least those around the periphery of the Macedonian congregation, who were preaching Christ for this motive. They were hoping to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Now, scholars tend to think that these people were doing this to try to prove that Paul was a less effective apostle. They're like, he must, Paul must be a screw-up because Paul just went and got himself arrested, and if he was smart like us, he would be able to preach Jesus and stay out of jail. We obviously are more effective because we can walk around without any hindrances, and we can preach, gospel, preach Jesus everywhere. Paul is stuck in a prison cell, right? And so um, they're motivated out of some kind of rivalry, so th- and their purpose is to afflict Paul. Like we're going to emotionally hurt Paul or spiritually afflict him. But look what, look what Paul says. Paul, I want to point out here that Paul says that one group knows why he's in prison. That's what Paul says. One group knows why I'm in prison. For the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The other simply thinks that they can afflict him. They think that what they're doing will negatively affect Paul. But Paul knows his imprisonment's for Jesus. How do we know that? Well, he says it. But if you remember on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appears to Paul in Acts chapter 9, Jesus says this. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's not a surprise to Paul. It's not a surprise to Paul that he's in prison. Jesus set him apart to defend his name at the highest levels of the Roman Empire. That was God's purpose. This was Christ's purpose for Paul. But there's something important here. There's something that we can all learn. Notice that does Paul grumble or complain about what he's going through? He's in prison, chained to people. He says that all of this has turned out that the whole praetorium guard knows about Jesus. Paul says, I'm not here to whine or complain. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to become discouraged about this. No. What we can learn is this. The more that we keep the gospel, and the more we keep God's mission at, in focus in our lives, the less likely we are to become discouraged or disoriented or disillusioned with the trials and struggles of this life. If we think this whole life is just about our comfort or just about us getting all the things we can get and life is only about the comforts that we can experience, you absolutely can become discouraged when those things are taken away from you. But if the whole purpose of your life is to exalt the name of Jesus and to live for His glory, to live for the day you stand before Him, when you will inherit eternal life, then there's nothing this world can throw at you that will shake you off of that foundation because you know this life is not all that there is. We don't live for this life only. That's why so many people are crushed when things of this world are taken from them is because their hope is only found in this life. It's what shows up. Now, look at verse 18 because this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Look at verse 18. This explains... Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
Paul tells us his response to these people. Paul's only care while in prison is that Christ is proclaimed and he'll rejoice in that no matter how it happens. It fills his heart with joy and gladness that Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is advanced. And that's been the whole point of his life since his conversion. For Paul, Christ was being proclaimed in prison. Christ was being proclaimed by the emboldened believers. And Christ is even being proclaimed by those who think they can hurt Paul's feelings. And at the end of the day, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? It's ironic that they think they're going to hurt Paul's feelings. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. I rejoice in what you're doing. You're not hurting me. You're filling me with joy because the aim of my life isn't to fill up my fickle emotions, but it's that Christ would be exalted. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Look at verses 19 through 21 as we look at Christ's glory above all else. And I'll move quickly and wrap this up. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says there at the end of verse 18, he says, Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I want you to focus right there on Paul's word. He says, it is my eager expectation It is my eager hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the ground, the foundation, the source of Paul's strength and endurance through pain and through his imprisonment. Paul has one great aim. Y'all focus right here with me. Think about this in your own life. Paul has one great aim. One great hope and one great desire for his life. Everything else falls into the secondary place apart from this one supreme, this one ultimate goal. And what is it? That one great aim and hope and passion and purpose is that Christ Jesus be glorified above all else. That's it. One simple aim. Whether he lives or whether he dies, Paul does not want to be ashamed of the way he has lived when he stands before Jesus. Instead of shame, he's taking up full courage to live or die for Christ. That's his only aim. Christ be glorified in me. That's my only aim. Now I want to read to you a quotation from a book entitled Don't Waste Your Life by way of illustration. Um, This is a a sermon that John Piper had given back when I was 18 or 19 years old um, at Shelby Farms in Memphis. I was there in the rain with Kelly um, when when he preached this sermon about Jesus being glorified in our bodies. And it shook me. And I've never been able to let it go from that day. And this is the story that he told He says, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single her whole life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a medical doctor 
pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in the unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus. Two, day, two decades after, almost all of their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. And then he says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he reads from Reader's Digest, 2000, page 98. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream. Come to the end of your life. Come to your one and only life and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be this. I collected shells. Standing before Jesus on judgment day, I collected shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. I just want to pause here. I don't want to make fun of Penny or Bob in this story because I don't know how they spent the rest of their lives. That's not the point. The point is the article's intent was to show you what a life well lived looked like. A life well lived is taking it easy on the beach in Florida. Now get it, I get it. I like taking it easy on the beach in Florida. But that cannot be the great aim of my life. For eternity, I want to stand in front of Jesus and say the great goal of my life was to collect shells. No. We can't have a different opinion here than Paul. We have to look at our lives and we have to say, it, what is my ultimate purpose in this life? Is my ultimate purpose simply to collect shells and wait on eternity? Or is my greatest desire and goal, my eager expectation, to live for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of his gospel? And I want to pause here and just say as I close, our Afghan brothers and sisters have to make this decision every day, and it's a different decision. Are we going to live for Jesus or give up our lives? Here in America, we are allured by a thousand different things that will not matter in eternity. And we have to make sure that when we stand before Jesus, our conscience is clear that, yeah, we might have had a lot of comforts in this life, but the great aim of our life was to make Jesus known, to live for his name and glory above all else. That has to be our desire. That has to be, we have to be able to say like Paul, it is my great expectation and hope that whether I live or die, Christ is glorified in my body. When I face down death, when I face down cancer, when I face down difficulties, when I have to deal with broken relationships, my only desire and hope is that Christ be glorified. Now, I just want to say Paul's desire here is very clear. Paul lived with two days on his calendar. Two days. Today and the day he stands before Jesus. He made every decision about today in light of that day. And that's the only way we can live. We're not promised tomorrow. We have to live every today in light of the, light of the day that we stand before Jesus. And as I close, I just want to say, are, are you ready for that day? 
I would say that there are many of you in this room that you are not ready to stand before Jesus because you know in your heart of hearts that you have lived a life and continue to live a life that is not a life of repentance and faith where Jesus is Lord, but a life that is only sought to for your own, that has only been lived for your own ends and your own desires. At the end of the day, you can't run away from the truth of you know where your heart is. So this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus. Embrace Him as your great hope, as your Lord. Come to Him in repentance and receive Him as the treasure of your life. Let everything else in this world pass away and say, the world behind me, the cross before me, I will follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I'll follow Him. And I will not waste the life He's given me, but I will live it for one great aim. His name and glory above all else. Would you pray with me, Father? Bless the preaching of Your Word. I pray that it has stirred our hearts. Father, this stirs my heart every time I read it. Father, I pray that it is our eager expectation and hope that Christ would be glorified no matter what in our lives. We pray this in His name. Amen.